Welcome to the CHEST COVID-19 webinar series. My name is Tim Murgo. I'm the Education Committee Chair for CHEST, and uh, it's my pleasure to be the moderator for today's webinar. Now, I was uh, reflecting on this session uh, just a few days ago as we're preparing the slides, and I realized that we are exactly one year into this pandemic, at least in the United States. Uh, if you recall the beginnings, it there was a lot of a lot of misinformation, rumors, and, and fear. Um, in fact, personally, I don't know for sure if the philosophy of care and the philosophy of safety in the very few weeks of the pandemic, if they were totally aligned. But fortunately, many professional societies, including CHEST, have promptly responded to, uh, to the pandemic. And um, our organizational response at CHEST under the leadership of President Stephanie Levine and Stephen Simpson, were to create um, a group of experts <clears throat> under the name of COVID-19 uh, Task Force. Um, this group, with a very strong support from CHEST staff, has done a monumental amount of work in the last year. Um, if you had a chance to browse our webpage, you'll find a variety of products. Yeah, there are summaries of key articles on COVID-19, um, summaries of uh, relevant guidelines and consensus statements, recordings of podcasts, uh, webinars, very user-friendly materials such as uh, infographics. This is only one example of them on tracheostomy and bronchoscopy, a project uh, done under the leadership of Chris Carroll. And uh, you'll find recordings of the webinars like the one that we're having today. As I look at this uh, slide and uh, uh, the pictures here, I'm really humbled and honored uh, to present the panel of experts. These are all leaders in their fields, in their uh, national societies. And um, uh, they have all contributed significantly to the knowledge on tracheostomy and bronchoscopy uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. The chair of uh, COVID-19 uh, task Force at CHEST, uh, Dr. Ryan Maves, in an editorial recently said that COVID-19 is the defining moment of our professional career. Uh, definitely, this panel has realized that given the amount of work they have done um, on this topic in the last year. So it's my pleasure to introduce the panel. We have Dr. Carla Lam from um, Leahy Clinic. Uh, she's the director of interventional pulmonology service there. And um, Dr. Lam is the first author of a tri-society consensus statement on uh, tracheostomy during the COVID pandemic. We um, are um, fortunate uh, to have Dr. Uh, Pandian, who is an um, associate professor in the Department of Nursing and also associate director of the Doctorate of Nursing and uh, at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, Dr. Pandian, she's uh, also the president of the Otolaryngology Head and Neck uh, Nurses um, Society and uh, has uh, contributed significantly to uh, research on quality of life uh, in patients on mechanical ventilation and patients with uh, tracheostomy. Uh, very well published uh, with uh, uh, many publications in the last year pertinent to COVID-19 and tracheostomy. We have um, 
Dr. Michael Brenner, a pleasure to have an otolaryngologist, um, ENT surgeon joining our panel today. Dr. Brenner works at the University of Michigan where he's an associate professor. And um, he's also the president of the Global Tracheostomy um, Collaborative Project, which is a QI project pertinent to improving safety of uh, tracheostomy. Dr. Brenner has also published extensively on tracheostomy. In fact, uh, a few days ago, I was doing a search and I noted 20 publications on tracheostomy in COVID-19 just uh, since the pandemic has started. And it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Momen Wahidi, who is um, a very loyal member of CHEST, a leader in our field of interventional pulmonology, past president of the AABIP, and um, um, he works at Duke University, where he's the director of interventional pulmonary and bronchoscopy service. Dr. Wahidi um, is author of many guidelines and consensus statements, including the AABIP CHEST consensus statement and guideline on bronchoscopy and COVID-19. Um, so without further ado, um, I would like to pass the microphone to uh, Dr. Wahidi to start telling us um, about the guidelines that have been published on bronchoscopy and COVID-19 and give us an update um, of the literature and share his experience and expertise on this topic. Dr. Wahidi. Wonderful. Well, thank you for inviting me. Really a real pleasure to be here and I'm excited to be here together and, and have a dialogue and about uh, how to do bronchoscopy safely in a timely manner during a, the, the pan, uh, pandemic. Uh, I, I just like uh, Dr. Murgu was uh, discussing, I did not imagine that we would be talking about COVID uh, in uh, almost uh, you know, the end of February of 2021, but here we are. Um, uh, we, we've all uh, got this and handled it and uh, uh, I, we all see the, the uh, light at the end of this tunnel. So uh, I don't have any disclosures related to this topic. Um, you know, early on in the pandemic, recommendations came from the WHO and CDC uh, talking about uh, safety of doing procedures like bronchoscopy uh, in patients with suspected or confirmed COVID infections. Clearly bronchoscopy is an aerosol generating procedure. Um, it can po pose a high risk to healthcare workers. And therefore, WHO and CDC recommended that bronchoscopy is performed in an airborne infection isolation room and the healthcare workers in the room uh, should wear N95 or res uh, respirator or high level respirator, eye protection, gloves and gowns. So back in March, we actually got together here at the CHESS, worked with AABIP and wanted to produce a, a consensus document and guidelines for the clinicians on bronchoscopy during the COVID uh, pandemic. So we actually uh, started in March and produced this by end of uh, April. It was tremendous work from the panelists. And we got panelists representing uh, multiple societies and multiple disciplines, um, nursing, respiratory therapists, uh, physicians, uh, infectious disease, critical care, pulmonary. Uh, we looked for any evidence on Medline and we use validated tools to assess the quality of the studies and to come up with recommendations that are either supported by the evidence or if there's no evidence uh, would be supported by consensus. And I'm gonna share a, a few questions. I'm not, it's not gonna be a comprehensive review of that uh, uh, publication, but just kind of the common questions. 
And so the first question uh, is uh, if you're doing bronchoscopy in a patient with suspected or confirmed COVID-19 infection, which is uh, a better protection for the healthcare worker, an N95 or a PAPR, the powered air purifying respirators? And so if we just look quickly at the sort of advantages and disadvantages of each um, type of protection, so N95 masks, they're easy to wear, they're disposable. Uh, they do have disadvantages. You have to have a tight seal, they can be uncomfortable. And most uh, uh, individuals need this fit testing to see what uh, size uh, you need. Pappers uh, actually have been shown to have a high filtration efficiencies, uh, but you don't need a, a fit test uh, to wear them. They come with their own, their own face shields and they're reusable. So these are really good advantages. On the disadvantage side, there is a significant risk of contamination if you're donning and doffing um, and you can decontaminate or contaminate the, the PAPR. And there's maintenance and storage issues. They're not disposable, obviously. So when we looked at all of that and then looked at data, there's really no data comparing um, these two methods of protection. Uh, but uh, by consensus, we reached this uh, suggestion that when you're doing a bronchoscopy on a patient with suspected or confirmed COVID-19 infection, that either would work, uh, either the N95 or a PAPR. Early on in the pandemic, there's a lot of fear and people insisted that they would wear PAPR when they do bronchoscopy, but that was not supported, at least by the evidence that PAPR is much better than N95. N95. So you can wear either or. Obviously, uh, it's not just the respirator, you have to wear also gown, gloves, and, and face shield to protect your eyes. And the N95 should be discarded after the bronchoscopy if you're doing it in a patient suspected or confirmed, cannot be reused. The second question that's a very common question, we hear it all the time, is about the use of BAL in the diagnosis of COVID-19 infection. So as you know, the sort of the workhorse for diagnosing COVID-19 is the nasopharyngeal swab. Uh, it's a, it's a real-time reverse transcription PCR. Um, it's, you know, there's, the data is not great, but it's believed that its sensitivity is 70%, perhaps a little higher uh, as we know it now. Uh, but there was this kind of uh, 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 notion that BAL is better. And we looked at some of the data when we looked at the guidelines. Um, there was a study from China that looks at over 1,000 specimens from 205 patients. And it wasn't really a comparative study. It was more of a listing of the positive tests from each source uh, or uh, from the body. So you can see BAL had a 93% uh, detection rate uh, and then sputum nasal swab was lower. Um, and even in feces, and, and uh, they detected COVID-19. But uh, clearly this suggested that BAL may be uh, better than uh, nasopharyngeal swab. But again, there was not enough data to say um, you should BAL everybody suspected. And in fact, we think the risk to the healthcare workers to make BAL a routine procedure is too high. And so the guidelines suggested that if you suspect somebody, a patient having a COVID-19 infection, you should always do nas nasopharyngeal specimen first. When could bronchoscopy with BAL be indicated? Really, it's, it's if somebody has severe progressive disease requiring intubation, 
and you feel like the, the nasopharyngeal specimen were falsely negative, or maybe there's alternative diagnosis you're looking for, maybe a secondary infection or perhaps a different cause of ARDS uh, um, or infection, then, then maybe BAL is indicated. Again, we, we don't recommend till this date to make BAL a, a routine test for COVID-19. I'm aware since last March till now, there's been publications, sing, single center experiences saying they've done BAL and it's safe and that's okay. But I think uh, doing it routinely is not recommended. Uh, and the last question that garners a lot of interest, you know, I want to do a bronchoscopy. My patient is asymptomatic. But as you know, we live in a, in a community now, actually in the entire U.S. and, and a, a big chunk of the world, there's you know, community spread. And, and uh, what's the risk to us? Because the patient who's asymptomatic may actually carry the infection and be asymptomatic. And we don't want to perform bronchoscopies in aerosol-generated procedure on a patient who's asymptomatic, potentially positive, because that's huge risk to the um, healthcare workers and to subsequent patients who will enter that room to have procedures or might sit next to the patient in the waiting room before the procedure. So the recommendation was that uh, when, when you practice in a, in a community with transmission of COVID is present and prevalent, and frankly, that's the entire US and a huge chunk of Europe and, and uh, possibly some parts of Asia, then you should uh, always test patients before uh, procedure. So that's been sort of the, the, the practice in every hospital is if you're getting an invasive procedure like bronchoscopy or surgery, that you, the patients will get a preoperative uh, COVID test even if they're asymptomatic. Um, and even if the patient is, is COVID test is negative, we would still recommend that you wear N95 uh, and the rest of the protective equipment during um, uh, um, the bronchoscopy because those tests, the nasopharyngeal swab, as I showed you, are not perfect and their sensitivity is only about 70%. Um, uh, I'm going to end up a couple slides here on how about delaying bronchoscopy uh, should we perform during a, a pandemic? Well, if we're talking at, a, at a, a situation like what New York City had back in March, then really no procedures are being done. But if we take talking about now where we all have COVID, um, it's probably okay to do most bronchoscopies. But the question is, what if the patient's COVID positive? If the patient is newly COVID positive, probably you should postpone the bronchoscopy. We think at least 30 days is not great data, but at least what CDC recommends is 30 days from resolution of symptoms. You can see in that table, the emergent bronchoscopy that can't wait, and you have to do it on a COVID positive patient probably an isolated room with all the precautions you take with COVID patient, things like severe uh, stenosis in the airway, symptomatic central airway obstruction, massive hemoptysis or migrated stents. Those are indications that can't wait and you have to do it when the patient is infected. Two more issues. One, should we use disposable uh, scopes in COVID patients? The recommendations from the guidelines and, and society said yes, because it's easy to get rid of those scopes, eliminate the possibility of nosocomial infections between patients, and frankly, decrease the risk of staff handling the contaminated scopes. And anyway, disposable scopes are gradually becoming the, the main uh, tool in ICUs because you have this out-of-hours access 
So this is um, not, not based on study, but based on consensus. And finally, uh, uh, you know, uh, medical folks are innovative. And so they uh, innovated a lot of tools and boxes and safety barriers. Uh, and they, they, they looked cool and, and innovative, but uh, do they work? And are they good for our patients and our healthcare workers? There's actually a nice meta-analysis of, of, of 42 studies of these enclosures. This was more focused on the airways for intubation, but it's very similar to bronchoscopy tools and boxes. And interestingly, this meta-analysis actually did not recommend these devices because they say it adds to the complexity of airway procedures. Uh, you can have limitation on performing some airway interventions that can get in your way. Um, you know, it may, it may get in the way of the assistant helping you and actually can cause patient injury sometimes if these pieces move. And it can also compromise the PPE integrity. So there's no evidence that they protect you uh, more than a PPE, and they're probably not recommended. So I'll stop here uh, and turn it to Tim, see if there's any questions to answer right now. Thank you, Dr. Wahidi. I appreciate the comprehensive review and sharing some of your experience. There are actually many questions that have been submitted prior to the webinar. When people registered, they had the opportunity to send out some questions. And I know you addressed many of them, especially in regards to, to the PPE and risk of uh, infection and transmission to the staff. Um, but there are a few that um, uh, we should probably talk about now. And one of them is regarding the technique. So when you contemplate doing a bronchoscopy in a patient with COVID, um, any preference in terms of um, sedation or um, anesthesia? Should this be with moderate sedation or with general anesthesia? And I can potentially think about the context there, you know, moderate sedation being worried about cough and maybe worsening that aerosolization. Can you comment on that? If there is any science in terms of risk transmission or, or share your experience? Yeah, to my knowledge, there's no, there's no comparative studies, but I think it makes sense if you're able to, to do it with an ET tube and potentially anesthesia, that decreases the, potentially the, the transmission of droplets and um, uh, you know, have a more control um, airways to, to restrict the, the spread of the droplets. So I think that's preferable. Frankly, if you're doing it on a COVID patient, they might be sick and you can't even do it probably without an airway uh, like an ET tube. If you're doing it on a COVID asymptomatic patient, uh, still, if you can, probably an ET tube is preferred for that reason. Thank you. There is another question in regards to management of airway obstruction. And I know you, you mentioned that if the airway is critically narrowed and people are symptomatic, you know, regardless of the COVID status, we need to intervene and try to protect ourselves. But there are, there are patients that are not critically ill, yet they do have a narrowing um, that we're worried about that in the weeks to come may worsen and people may need to come to the hospital or may develop other complications from airway obstruction like pneumonia or hemoptysis. So I guess the question there is what, what bronchoscopic modality you think would be safe to perform in, um, in patients with COVID and airway obstruction? And maybe a follow-up question is if you delay it, how long do you think it will be safe to delay such a procedure in a patient with confirmed airway obstruction that's not critically ill? 
Yeah, um, I'll, I'll start with the latter. I think if, if, they're, um, if they have airway obstruction that's severe, probably you cannot postpone that procedure and you just have to do it while they're COVID positive, take all the precautions. Um, you know, we've all had to do procedures on COVID patients, including tracheostomy, and you guys will talk about that. And you just take the maximum precautions. I think the idea is just to delay the ones that can wait. If you can wait 30 days, you have to think about your patient and their best outcome in mind. If you can wait 30 days without um, impacting their survival or prognosis of whatever disease you're dealing with, then it's probably better to wait 30 days. If you can't, you have to do it, take all the precautions, just like when we do tracheostomies and other emergent or urgent procedures. As far as the modalities, I'm not aware of any data um, comparing. I mean, if you want to extrapolate, we knew from prior publications that maybe laser um, can spread you know, more, uh, we'll talk about HPV, human papillomavirus, maybe a little more spread. Um, if you want to extrapolate, maybe say, don't use laser, use something that's more contact. But that would be extrapolation. I'm not aware of any real data saying that uh, one modality is better than the other. Thank you. And then you, you mentioned the disposable scopes and um, sure enough, from my review of the literature, it looks like many of the papers that come out in regards to bronchoscopy in COVID, especially in the ICU, have been done with the um, uh, single-use, I'm sorry, yeah, with the single-use bronchoscopes. Um, but you are a interventional pulmonologist doing complex airway interventions and advanced bronchoscopic procedures. Are you aware of any data on the use of single-use scopes for such interventions? Um, or share your experience with those scopes for such procedures, if any? Yeah, I mean, I think in the last year or so, every procedure we had to do on a COVID patient was either tracheostomy, percutaneous, and we use a disposable scope, or potentially the occasional suctioning of mucus or hemoptysis or a BAL. So none of, none of the procedures needed um, an advanced scope, if you will. And so here, the disposable single-use scope uh, was very appropriate and, and served the purpose because you don't want to bring the, the bronchoscopy tower of, of the reusable scopes and we, in, you know, clean it all and sterilize it and risk it coming out of the patient's room being contaminated. Again, if we had to do an interventional procedure like a central airway obstruction, we took him to the OR where it's a lot more controlled environment. Everything stayed there and there's all these protocols for COVID uh, positive patients. But other than that, I think the majority of bronchoscopies in COVID-positive patients were simple, uh, or at least you know not, not needing major interventions. And I think the uh, uh, single-use scopes there worked well. Single-use scopes, you know, have good vision and good lighting, but not as good as the uh, reusable scope. But for these purposes, I think they worked well and offered a lot of convenience and decreased the risk to the healthcare workers. Appreciate your concise response because I do have a couple of more questions and sure. then we'll, we'll move on. Um, so you mentioned the um, bronchoscopy in the ICU, maybe for aspiration of secretions. One of the questions that came in uh, prior to the webinar is in regards to when in the course of ARDS do you perform a bronchoscopy to look for opportunist opportunistic infections? Yeah, I mean, I personally don't, overuse bronchoscopy in these situations. Uh, only if I have a really high suspicion um, that the patient potentially has a secondary infection, 
Uh, other than that, I, I don't think doing bronchoscopy and BAL looking for things all the time is advisable. I think it has to be individualized uh, based on your suspicion of a specific infection. But doing it on every COVID patient looking and doing BAL and sending it for fungus and microbacteria, looking for that opportunistic infection, I don't think that that would be high yield. I think it's a case-by-case basis. Perfect. And the very last question in one minute here. Are you retesting for COVID prior to a rescheduled procedure in someone who has tested positive in the past? And if you do, how does that impact your workflow? That's a great question. I think, you know, we're, we're learning all these new terms and categories, and now we're calling these patients COVID recovered. And frankly, we're not rechecking COVID um, because it might be positive still two months later. And what do you do with that? Um, I think we're not. Um, and, um, you know, again, if you can't wait 30 days and then just bring them to the Bronx suite, just treat them with the, the precaution you do with other patients and 95 covering um, and then they come in and wear a mask. But I don't think you need to retest them because you might get another positive test. That doesn't mean you should cancel your procedure. Perfect. Thank you so much, Dr. Wahidi. Truly a pleasure. Now let's move to the tracheostomy part of the session. And we'll start with Dr. Lam, who will give us an update on patient selection, timing, and um, teams. And as um, I mentioned before, Dr. Lam is the first author of the Tri-Society Statement on Tracheostomy During COVID, a statement authored by uh, AABIP, CHEST, and AIPPD. Dr. Lam. Thanks, Dr. Magu. So I think, again, what I'm going to highlight in the top of this uh, talk is really looking at tracheostomy, but reflect a little bit on the paper that was published and have some context behind it but also really highlight some things that we've learned in the past year, uh, specifically about patient timing, patient selection, and building the team. And I think those are valuable lessons that we'll take on beyond the pandemic. I have no disclosures about the topic. And I think just to highlight and reflect the um, paper that we, our intention behind this, let me just state that it was multidisciplinary, that it represented three different societies as Dr. Mugu mentioned, but also 13 institutions who at the time at the top of the COVID pandemic in the US represented 10 of the 20 states in the US that were most impacted with volume. So the questions that were coming up um, among us day-to-day practical questions about how to approach a patient who was COVID positive, who may uh, need a tracheostomy or be considered for that. These questions came up and we really, it was born out of that. And I think we tried to take a very systematic approach, reviewing of the literature, using the modified Delphi method um, to really determine consensus where there was evidence and then to acknowledge when there was not. And I think that's important because we were building on that. And I think that we intend for this to be a living document, meaning that as we get more evidence that we can enhance and modify these recommendations or the, at least these suggestions. You know, I think, again, at the time we were building this paper, trying to help others by creating some discussable questions, we were referencing in the literature things that were being extrapolated from 2003, the SARS outbreak and other viral pandemics, which are clearly not identical to what we've experienced here in 2020 and 2021. And I highlight a couple of things because the thing that makes unique 
vastly different COVID-19 tracheostomy care is that we were not only thinking about the timing of the trach, how to minimize infectivity to healthcare workers and maintain a strong workforce and keep people healthy and safe when there was a lot of fear in the beginning, and also how to utilize proper PPE and how to reduce aerosolization whenever we possibly could. Also with the surge, you have to acknowledge that the capacity of the ICUs were beyond capacity and there would be many volunteer providers that were not formally critically care trained where we were building ICU uh, managed patients beyond the scope of the ICU. And so you had multiple um, skill sets, if you will, of providers and knowledge and comfort levels uh, in being thrust into critical care environments very abruptly. I'm going to highlight, I think it's important to state the eight recommendations and then I'm going to really pull out from that in just a few minutes the things that may be shifting because the evidence is more informative now. So we all agreed based on the evidence that trach should be considered with prolonged mechanical vent. But let me state that worldwide, many set of societies came out with consensus um, questioning whether to trach these patients at all, whether or not to offer the trachs or not traching till 21 days or beyond. And there's some lessons learned that we can shift that because now therapies are in place um, that change prognosis and mortality of the disease. We really looked hard to find specific timing. Can we find a, a, a timing that would be best for doing tracheostomy in COVID patients that would balance safety of healthcare providers, but also safety and improved outcomes for the patients themselves and really balance both. Um, we also looked at technique. Most of the extrapolated data from the prior pandemics, all the trachs were surgically done in an open fashion, but then the evolution of percutaneous trach has come about since then and beyond that. So and that'll be discussed with Dr. Brenner. Wearing PPE, as you heard from Dr. Wahidi, it, it rings true in providing the same level of PPE protection, and we know that it works. And we've seen that over and over again as we've done these aerosolize-inducing uh, procedures and come out of it safe with proper PPE in place and precautions. And then also trying to understand, well, um, in the setting of COVID, does additional testing, is it required? So if a patient comes in and you know that they're COVID positive, at one point, there was a thought process to wait till the patient became or converted to be negative. But now we know clearly, and based on the CDC guidelines, that patients who are the most sick tend to shed the virus the longest and register PCR data positive when, in fact, they are no longer as infective or not infective at all, even though they're shedding virus that's detectable. And then recommending that you build a multidisciplinary team more than ever around not only the peri-care, but the immediate post-care and the long-term post-trait care is paramount for the reasons that I've mentioned that you have providers all over the hospital. And in some cases, the number of trach patients in, an, in any given institution at one time, unprecedented volume, triple that of a baseline normal day pre-COVID with trach tracheostomy patients in the building and then keeping the circuits closed. Those were kind of the summary of the recommendations. So let me tease out some highlights for us. 
So patient criteria, again, I'm going to take the assumption that we have a good understanding of what the basic indications for tracheostomy are, and so I'm not going to highlight those here. But in the setting of COVID, it, we found, and also the literature bears this out worldwide, that the patients who were not having progressive evolutionary multi-system organ failure, those are the patients who would be considered for trach because they were more predictive of survivability. Also, these are not the patients who were having escalating vasopressor uh, requirements because of hemodynamic, hemodynamic instability. They had no evidence of an irreversible coagulopathy, and there was an anticipated need for imminent proning. Um, far be it to have a patient with a new tracheostomy with proning to potentially lose airway. So I think that was a consideration. And then ventilator criteria, and I highlight the ventilator criteria, is there, are there thresholds in which a patient is requiring a certain amount of ventilator support such that you would not, at least at that moment, offer a tracheostomy? And the answer is this. If they're on a PEEP greater than 12, if their FI2 is greater than 60%, if they have a high respiratory rate, minute ventilation, or they're already significantly hypercapnic on that level of ventilator support, it's predictable that they would not be able to tolerate a, a, to, at least a sustained period of apnea in order to minimize aerosolization and actually um, actuate apnea during a tracheostomy itself. I actually highlight again about the PCR test, and this is actually a very nice, uh, very comprehensive table published by um, Dr. McGrath and Dr. Brenner, who's one of our panelists and colleagues, that I think really distills in one snapshot the risk of infectivity and timing. I'm just going to uh, highlight a couple of things. The peak onset of infectivity of any patient is now known to be one to five days within symptom onset and it markedly declines by day 10 and beyond, even though the PCR may still be registering positive. And this is important as we consider safety and implementation of maybe a better thought process behind timing of tracheostomy. So let's think about tracheostomy timing. As I said before, we did not find compelling evidence on either side to, uh, to really confirm early trach less than seven days, intermediate trach between 10 and 14, or greater than 14. Again, many, many guidelines came out without data saying don't trach till day 21. Let me state for the record, based on our evidence and the things that have shifted, that we would clearly recommend not waiting greater than 21 days. You'll see published in chess soon a point counterpoint looking at early trach defined as less than 14 days or greater than 14 days. And these are some interesting, in the COVID populations, a systemic review and meta-analysis of 18 studies exploring over 3,000 patients demonstrated that only 5% of trachs were performed day 7, 21.2 between days 8 and 13, but the majority were performed around day 14 or beyond. And this was also another meta-analysis that also identified that the timing of trach did not directly impact mortality. There was a very elegant paper that came out also in the COVID population using machine learning. And I think it's worth mentioning because it's informative. It showed that machine learning has been implemented to determine optimal timing of tracheostomy in COVID, identifying that it to be between day 13 to 17, with emphasis in that the first 12 to 14 days, patients either demonstrated full liberation from mechanical ventilation with successful extubation, 
or they did not survive. And so I think that also gives us information that we did not have at the beginning of the pandemic. Now, a little bit about the team, building the team. We've always had a comprehensive team when we think about tracheostomy care, but I have to say that COVID pandemic had accelerated the, um, the spotlight on this need for team. If you notice here, I included palliative care, and that's not the typical team member you have on your multidisciplinary trach team in non-COVID times. But I think it's relevant because it really enhances and makes intentional goals of care in the bigger picture. Um, and I think the thing that has shipped most, most often in the last year is that we have improved survival because they're actually therapies and how we manage patients using high flow oxygen. And many of these patients are not getting intubated where in the beginning they were all potentially getting intubated. Just to wrap up, so just some practical experience. So how did we maintain our workforce and have a, you know, kind of a divergent team, but a comprehensive team. We had a rotation of a virtual pager that would take care of all the COVID positive potential tracheostomy evals. It comprised interventional pulmonary, otolaryngology, general surgery, and thoracic surgery. It was a rotation on a weekly basis, so we could have kind of fresh troops, if you will, rotating through so you could pre always preserve your workforce across the disciplines. And we enhanced that team with MD providers on the floor, hospitalists, internists, our RNs at bedside, our respiratory therapists, physical therapists, and lastly, speech therapy. This is a safety sheet that we created at our institution. It's hot pink because it stands out at the bedside. We put it at the head of the bed of every patient who has a tracheostomy, new, intermediate, or old trach. And ultimately, it identifies who owns the trach care, who to call in a case of an emergency, if there's an airway code because of an accidental decannulation or anything problematic to cause respiratory distress in a trach patient. And that way, in one stop, anyone who goes to that bedside can get to the the meat of the matter, if you will, in terms of safety right away. And every patient is equipped at bedside with a custom trach safety box. It's hot pink at the front of the bedside and includes all the proper gear to recannulate and put place the trach immediately if there's an emergency if the or the patient gets intubated from above. But that's, I think a, it's been a game changer at our institution and a very practical, but it took time to shift the culture of change so it was uniform in every patient bedside with a trach. And then lastly, I think, again, this is very comprehensive, but I will stress this, that the volume of in-hospital volume, even though these patients were traked and pegged, we often found that there was a limited number of LTAC who were available to transfer these patients from our institution to the LTAC for their longer term care. And so we had an unprecedented number of patients with trach in the building and many different providers. We had to build in redundancy of care provisions. So people really, really were comfortable with managing trachs, especially in the setting of COVID. And we were able to safely perform on a a routine basis, simulation training uh, regarding three key items, accidental decannulation, obstructed trach, and bleeding tracheostomy. And that has served us well and has enhanced our safety profile of these patients. Uh, thank you. But I think these are kind of the key lessons learned and we're still learning. Uh, but I think that we're moving forward and, and the evidence is supportive of the things that we're shifting toward. Thank you. Appreciate it, Dr. Lam. Uh, thank you for the nice summary of the literature and update of the literature and sharing your institutional experience. 
Um, I know there are several questions that we received um, through the registration page in pertinent to tracheostomy, but um, before we start addressing those, let's um, hear a surgical perspective and the post-tracheostomy care perspective. So let's start with Dr. Brenner. Um, Dr. Brenner, you can start sharing your slides and talk to us about tips for open trach during COVID-19. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Margu, for the kind opportunity to speak during this session. Uh, and Dr. Lamb, uh, a phenomenal introduction to this topic and, and really very forward-looking work uh, with the article. CHEST has really been at the vanguard of this effort, uh, and I learned a lot from Dr. Wahidi's discussion as well. I'm honored to be here and for all the uh, uh, individuals that have joined in on this session. Uh, so basically, uh, I'll be speaking a bit from the perspective of a surgeon uh, and on open tracheostomy, but interestingly, in many ways, I think that the discussion regarding open tracheostomy versus percutaneous tracheostomy is actually one of those great examples of sometimes not seeing the forest for the trees. And that the really important question is, how do we ensure that we're doing the safest possible procedure uh, at the most appropriate time for the appropriate candidates. And that's why I think that the introduction uh, and background that Dr. Lamb provided was so helpful. So if we look uh, at the basic anatomy uh, that we're dealing with in tracheostomy, from a surgical perspective, we look for landmarks like the sternal notch, inferiorly, uh, the thyroid lamina, and then the cricoid cartilage. And a couple finger breaths below that is usually where we're making our incision. Uh, the two things that really tend to cause bleeding uh, in the setting of tracheostomy are the thyroid isthmus and the anterior jugular veins. Uh, you can also have a fair amount of oozing uh, that can arise from the strap musculature. So I think that looking at this anatomy is helpful just in terms of thinking about those issues around bleeding because they're particularly relevant in the case of COVID-19 because of the prothrombotic tendencies of this disorder. Many, if not most or all of the patients are going to have some degree of anticoagulation. And then when you consider the severe pulmonary insult that's associated with COVID-19, the last thing that you want is significant aspiration of blood in these patients. Uh, more to the point, in terms of your concerns regarding aerosol generation, there's little that's worse for generating an aerosol than having a patient who's aspirated blood who's coughing uh, during a procedure or after it. Uh, once they're on the floor following the procedure. So one thing that is particularly helpful, I find when approaching surgical tracheostomy, which is usually, I, well, it can be in, in any candidate, but particularly for those patients that have unfavorable anatomy due to obesity, uh, high riding anominate, uh, or other characteristics of their neck, is to basically, once you have divided away, made your skin incision, divided away, the midline or FA and then retracted the musculature to lift up the, uh, the thyroid isthmus instead of dividing it, which is uh, you know, something that is, I think, done too infrequently. You can basically cauterize some of the attachments of various ligament of the isthmus to the underlying trachea, and then you can have a bloodless operation. So the more common approach that we often see is with the isthmus divided, but I think that in these anticoagulated patients, this is actually something to potentially avoid. Uh, there are a couple of different ways to enter the tracheostomy. What's depicted here is sort of a trap door type approach where that trap door or what technically a Bjork flap can be sewed to the uh, lower inferior margin of the skin. And then that way, in the event of dislodgement, 
you can minimize the risk that a patient is going to have a false tract developed that can uh, run risk of anoxic brain injury or other severe uh, insults. Others would argue that a faster approach of just a vertical incision is preferable, uh, quicker, and also closes up the airway when the tracheostomy isn't needed. And that's an ongoing dialogue, but I tend to think that the patient uh, safety uh, in the perioperative period, particularly after surgery, is, is for me the foremost consideration. In addition, when you're thinking about the sizing of the apparatus, you have to consider the patient's anatomy. So some patients will have a very thick neck, and in that case, lengthening the proximal portion of the device can be particularly helpful. Conversely, you can also have patients where you have distal obstruction. And in that case, the distal portion of the device is important. I mean, it turns out that in the operating room, you can take pretty much any one size fits all device and usually get it into the airway, get your CO2 return and have what appears to be a satisfactory outcome. But where you potentially run into problems is once these patients come onto the floor and then you find that their peak pressures are elevating or that you're getting subcutaneous emphysema or other complications. One other nuance that is something that I think has received far too little attention is what the impact is of the apnea that's often used during these procedures. So uh, Dr. Lamb very nicely talked through the sequence and various considerations as you're doing the procedure, which are not that different in uh, percutaneous versus open tracheostomy in terms of minimizing aerosolization. But the key point that I'm trying to depict here is that while there's a lot of awareness of lung protective ventilation avoiding barotrauma with overinflation, there's also a significant concern that arises when you have apnea for a period of time because effectively you, those alveoli can collapse and then you get this atelectotrauma. So effectively um, what's going on is that there's de-recruitment of those alveoli. One useful tip that I can suggest is that an apnea trial prior to the procedure can give you a sense of what the patient's reserve is and if they don't have adequate reserve to tolerate a period of apnea, you probably want to reconsider whether you should be doing the procedure at that time point at all. Uh, this is the same figure that Dr. Lamb had shown. The point that I want to highlight here is that when we look at the timing for tracheostomy, um, in this particular publication, the recommendation was sort of between 10 and 21 days as a window, and, and that's widely debated uh, whether that is optimal or not. But the thing that I highlight here is that from time of infection, that's actually closer to 21 days. So if you look at the peach in the lower right, that basically corresponds to a window that is 16 to 27 days from symptoms, but closer to three weeks from the initial infection. And so therefore, you have these situations where, as some of our prior speakers have pointed out, you have inert virus that is replication deficient, uh, even in culture, it can't reproduce, but you still can PCR it out. So you really wanna be looking more at the considerations of what is the real physiology and biology of this virus, although it's shown itself a bit cunning as these various mutants have arisen that have different transmissibility characteristics and different virulence. So I'll close with a couple of quick pearls about COVID-19 tracheostomy. Uh, first, uh, I think that if it's worth noting that if you don't need to intubate a patient, then you're not going to have to contemplate the issues around tracheostomy. And there's more and more adoption of these non-invasive approaches. Uh, you can assess candidacy with an apnea trial, as I alluded, that simulates the apnea that you would provide during the procedure. Negative pressure rooms, appropriate PPE and use of essential staff are all helpful. Conducting a dry run can help ensure that everybody's on the same page, including considerations about donning and doffing, 
using senior staff. And then is a technical aspect as you're doing the procedure, the issue of aerosol generation doesn't arise until you actually enter the airway. So basically you can do a meticulous dissection until you get down to the trachea, then you can advance the tube distally uh, so that actually you even have a seal as you're entering the airway. And then thereafter, you basically uh, enter the airway and establish a closed circuit. So in closing, I would just note that the multidisciplinary approach involves many stakeholders is critical. And with that, I'll pave the way to uh, what happens afterwards, uh, which Dr. Pandian will discuss. Thank you. Perfect. I know there are several questions that came in, um, some live, and again, there are about 20 questions that were submitted prior to the webinar. But before we get to those, let's hear Dr. Pandian talking about um, post-tracheostomy care. Dr. Pandian. Um, thank you, Dr. Murugu, for inviting me to speak today. I'm very honored to be representing the nurses who are at the front line, along with many interprofessional colleagues fighting this COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and I'm delighted to use this opportunity to share a few safety considerations following a tracheotomy that we learned in the past year. Uh, the considerations that I will be sharing are applicable for the interprofessional team members, but very much applicable to those of you who are proceduralists and intensivists who will be placing the tracheostomy and or guiding the care uh, for patients who receive a tracheostomy. The first consideration is related to the type of tracheostomy tube. While there are so many different types of tubes in the market, uh, they're primarily classified as those with a disposable inner cannula and those with a reusable inner cannula. And of course, we have the ones without inner cannulas that are used um, predominantly for patients uh, who are um, younger or the pediatric population. Uh, but in the adult world, it's usually reusable or in, um, disposable inner cannulas. Uh, with regards to reusable inner cannulas, I'm not sure if many of you know, it actually requires extensive care with cleaning and reinserting that might expose bedside nurses and respiratory therapists to viral particles. As a result, uh, the recommendation by several national organizations and content experts such as Dr. Meister and her colleagues in a state-of-the-art review recommended that we consider placing a tracheostomy tube with a disposable inner cannula so that it'll decrease healthcare workers' exposures to patient airway secretions. So this might be something that you could decide even before you start the tracheostomy procedure, taking post-tracheostomy care into consideration. After the tracheostomy tube is placed as a proceduralist, uh, you will be ensuring that the cuff pressure seems reasonable on whatever ventilator settings the patients are on before leaving the patient's bedside. But after you leave the patient's bedside, the bedside nurse and respiratory therapist are going to be monitoring and identifying issues with cuff pressures and will seek your consultation. And so when they seek your consultation, obviously you need to be aware on how to guide practice. So cough pressures are typically checked by respiratory therapists every eight hours or once a shift um, and as needed using a cough manometer and maintained between 20 and 30 centimeters of water. If the pressure is less than 20 centimeters of water, there's a risk of micro aspiration of upper, upper airway secretions leading to ventilator associated pneumonia. 
But with COVID-19, there was an increased concern about the risk of healthcare providers being exposed to viral particles. And so in a guidance paper written by 30 experts from 20 countries led by Dr. Brandon McGrath, recommended that we should maintain cuff pressure slightly greater than 30 centimeters of water or slightly greater than whatever the patients would have required typically to decrease the risk of aerosolization of viral particles. However, with, um, while you're following these recommendations, we need to be mindful of the risks of increased cuff pressure on tracheal wall that could lead to tracheal stenosis or tracheomalacia uh, with these uh, high cuff pressures. Another consideration is regarding humidification. The standard of care is to ensure that patients with a tracheostomy have some form of humidification since tracheostomy bypasses natural humidification via the nares. In light of COVID-19, to avoid the risk of viral particles being sprayed, cool heated aerosols were discouraged during the pandemic. And what happened was that in many hospitals, respiratory therapists completely stopped using humidifiers altogether. That actually backfired because now you have patients who are at high risk for mucus floods and a need for frequent tracheostomy tube changes, uh, which in fact placed healthcare workers at a higher risk for exposure. And so uh, the recommendation from expert respiratory therapists from the American Association of Respiratory Care is that a heated humidifier that does not produce an aerosol or produces little amount of aerosol should be considered uh, to assist with humidification, especially when the patient is on a ventilator and is receiving positive pressure um, because of um, the positive pressure pushing the viral particles out. If the patient is not on a mechanical ventilator, then heat moisture exchangers with filters should be considered so that we can have both humidification and filtration of viral particles. And this is important because not all HMEs have filters in them. And also there are HMEs with filters that are hydrophobic in nature and could prevent expiratory flow of viral particles or even prevent inspiratory flow of bacteria and viruses. So the goal is to identify cost-efficient HME that is safe for your patient. And also, if you have the ability to be part of the hospital discussion in the selection and purchase of HMEs at your institution, uh, this would be um, an important consideration. With regards to suctioning, when a patient is on a ventilator, a recent publication based on evidence and expert opinions from 16 critical care nurses from 10 countries reported that a closed system should be maintained to decrease expulsion of aerosolized viral particles from the positive pressure ventilation. Uh, in order to maintain a closed system or closed circuit system, an inline suction catheter is recommended as shown in the figure on the left. And this is something that's not new for you because we've used this. We are familiar with this closed system uh, for patients who are mechanically ventilated. But you might be wondering, how can we make this work for patients who are not mechanically ventilated? Uh, so if you turn your attention to the figure on the right that depicts a person who's not requiring mechanical ventilation, a T-piece, which is uh, diagrammatically represented with a purple color here, uh, with a green color HME, with expiratory filter is recommended to maintain a closed or a close to closed system. 
Uh, talking to various experts around the world, I've learned that each hospital has come up with innovative approaches using different attachments to create this modified uh, way to make this work. And so you definitely should follow your institutional guidelines. When transporting a tracheostomy patient who is on a ventilator to diagnostic or therapeutic locations, let's say to a bronchoscopy suite, the tracheostomy tube should be inflated with appropriate cuff pressures to maintain a closed system. If the patient does not require a ventilator, then a heat, um, heated moisture exchanger should be placed on the tracheostomy tube and two masks should be used. So this is something we never really considered before COVID-19. And we've kind of learned this along the way to use one mask to cover the face, um, basically to cover the nose and mouth. Um, and one to cover the tracheostomy tube as shown in the figure to protect both healthcare workers and the patients. What we learned about assisting patients with tracheostomy tube communication is that deflating tracheostomy tube cuff serves as an aerosol generating procedure. And so Zaga and team in a multidisciplinary guidance paper discouraged deflating cuff and recommended that the cuff remain inflated. Uh, so if patient was COVID, especially if patient was COVID positive. My understanding is that this practice has been in full effect in Australia, UK, and several other countries, but in the United States, we've been a little bit more flexible, um, especially if there is a clinical need to facilitate end-of-life discussion or cognitive assessments. Um, but a um, discussion with interprofessional team is warranted because uh, when patient is getting positive pressure ventilation and you're deflating the cuff, you're really setting yourself to be exposed. But um, making sure that you're wearing full PPE and protecting yourself, you should be able to proceed if there is a true need for the patient to be able to communicate while they're on uh, the ventilator. If the patient is COVID negative or is a low risk for COVID-19 and requires mechanical ventilation, then extreme caution should be used by wearing appropriate PPE, given the rate of false negatives and the prolonged duration of viral shedding. In patients who do not require mechanical ventilation, the airway is exposed to external environment. And this is similar to a person who does not have a tracheostomy tube. But the difference is that the distance from the lower airways to the stoma is shorter. Um, and so a conservative approach should be used when deflating cough for assessing for upper airway patency or uh, for facilitating speech. So in summary, it's really important to consider some of these post-tracheostomy procedure safety considerations that we learned from COVID-19 pandemic, um, because I think that these could potentially be applicable for other viral infections also. And if you look at literature, there are a lot of publications that talk about the timing, talk about perk versus open, bedside versus OR, there are a lot of them, but there's not much evidence out there in terms of post-tracheostomy care. A lot of them are expert opinions, and this is definitely an area that's ripe for future research. Um, and so with that note, I would like to thank all of you and hand it over back to Dr. Murugu. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Pandian, for for a very pictorial and concise presentation. And since you talked about expert opinion, you know, there are several questions um, that have to do with technique and safety. And we, in the lack of evidence, we will need your um, expertise to answer some of them. One that actually came in via chat room is, um, how long after a tracheostomy can you safely 
prone a patient, I guess, in the context of someone who had a trach for COVID-19, but maybe decompensates and then um, requires proning. Um, how long can you, how long should you wait after a tracheostomy before considering proning? Um, I think that's a very good question. And I think nurses are uh, typically involved in the decision because they are the ones who actually have to um, do the proning. Um, and this is an ongoing discussion. We really don't know exactly when is the right time. Uh, but as a uh, rule, we usually try to wait at least for 48 hours um, to allow the bleeding uh, to decrease or decrease the risk of um, bleeding. Um, again, there is really no um, evidence to support that 48 hours is the appropriate time. Um, but if you are um, at a point where you have to prone the patient, then you have to make sure that you actually use like a donut shape support that's placed around the tracheostomy tube. So that way you're protecting it to the fullest possible to make sure that there is no accidental decannulation. Um, and there are also um, discussions that maybe you want to go back and suture the tracheostomy tube in place. It's possible it's removed, but if you're considering proning, you may want to consider that. Yeah. Um, Thank you. That's, uh, that's a very nice answer. Um, other questions are also pertinent to this apnea trial that was mentioned both by Dr. Lam and um, Dr. Brenner. Um, so what is a sustained apnea trial? Mm. Like how long do you wait? And, and let me follow up with that, something that I know that in my, in my experience, if you do it and they fail it um, because patient desaturates, are there any other techniques that you can use to minimize aerosolization and still proceed with a tracheostomy? Uh, Dr. Lam, let's start with you. So I, I think a couple of things have to happen with the apnea. I think using um, you know, analgesia and sedation and a paralytic to eliminate the potential for coughing uh, will also be another aerosol reducing intervention for the procedure. But generally speaking, again, you don't have to have a, a pro the apnea really occurs when you're going to be entering the airway, when you're making tube exchanges and that sort of thing. So there's incremental apneas that occur throughout the procedure. And again, at least at the bedside, a percutaneous tracheostomy can be done uh, when you're actually doing of the procedure in, in less than two or three minutes. So it's very quick. Um, you're making some positional changes with your ET tube. So I think a general rule of thumb is a bedside uh, apnea test for about one minute. Um, and so if they cannot tolerate that, it's really a predictor that maybe there's a bigger issue here and that they're, again, tracheostomies, I would consider elective procedures. So I think that there's time to push pause. I don't think there's an immediacy to trach in that particular patient for that reason. You can do some recruitment maneuvers, I imagine. I mean, obviously, we always pre-auctionate before we do the intervention anyway, but there, that could be a possibility. But again, it may be the timing of the trach may not be right per se for that patient. Thank you, Thank you Dr. Lamb. Dr. Brenner, you want to chime in? Yeah, well, I think that Dr. Lamb actually stated it, it particularly well. I, I want to give a call out to my colleague, uh, Dr. Brendan McGrath in the NHS, who's their national lead clinician, who's really uh, pushed the envelope on this particular approach to assessment. I think that uh, if you were to draw a line in the sand, one minute is, uh, is not unreasonable. The, the duration 
that you're going to require apnea is going to differ somewhat depending on whether you're doing an open or percutaneous procedure and the number of passes that you'll be making. Um, for a surgical tracheostomy, you can actually enter the airway very briskly. Um, so to some degree, you can titrate, you know, the amount of duration of apnea that you think that you'll require based on the expertise of your team, as well as considerations of the practical aspects of what you'll encounter in the operating room. One other nuance that is often not adequately recognized is that you can hold, you can have apnea where you maintain PEEP, or you can basically let that PEEP go so that you don't get something of a potential gust. Um, if you let the PEEP uh, dissipate, then also you're going to have a little bit more de-recruitment. So it, it's a bit of a judgment call at the end of the day, but I, one thing that uh, Dr. McGrath, his, his champion, and I agree is that you would really like to see a patient who's stabilized or a trajectory towards improvement for them to benefit from the intervention. And Dr. Dr. McGoo, one thing I would say is that, you know, of course, we talked about other techniques in that, you know, um, we, where the endotracheal tube can be left intact, uninterrupted, and going alongside entering the vocal cords para the, into the ET tube to allow visualization without any, and actually bypass, you know, going alongside and distal to the endotracheal tube without interruption. So you even minimize the time of apnea upon entry of the tracheostomy itself. Um, I think everyone has their preferences. I, I know it's been published as a technique and it's being utilized. It's not always uh, easy to do. I'll just say it can be challenging based on the patients that they have vocal cord edema, et cetera. It may not be the easiest technique. So just a thought. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for reminding us about that. And I know in our Tri-Society statement, we actually have a table on um, aerosol uh, minimizing techniques and that is mentioned as well. Um, Another question in uh, regards to technique and ICU care in patients with ECMO, um, there was a question regarding the safety and the technique of doing tracheostomy on someone who's already on ECMO, and I guess pertinent to, um, to COVID-19. Uh, can you share your experience with that, any of the panelists? Um, I can jump in because I've um, assisted our colleagues with tracheostomy on ECMO. Um, actually, in, co in light of COVID-19, um, the fear of exposure to viral particles, particles is actually lower when performing trachs on patients with ECMO because we just completely stop the ventilation and proceed with the tracheostomy procedure. Um, at Hopkins, we've actually been trying to do um, the cannulation of ECMO and tracheostomy around the same time as long as the patient is able to tolerate it. Thank you. Thank you. In regards to safety to the staff, um, there was a question regarding the data now that, you know, we were one year into the pandemic and several papers have been published on tracheostomy in, in COVID, including a systematic review and meta-analyses. Is there any data that there, this is indeed a, uh, procedure with a high risk for infectivity of healthcare providers. Um, can you comment on that? So I think, I think the key is that there's not a whole lot of published evidence yet saying uniformly that, you know, our healthcare workers being, how, how are we assessing infectivity? I mean, people, could they be developing COVID and being asymptomatic if they're, if you took all the trait teams 
and everyone had interval swabs, you know, testing intervally during the course of their interventions, that study's not there. I mean, that would be the scientific way to know how many people contracted COVID. They came in pre-trait COVID-free, and then now over time, you know, they developed it. And then even then, how can you tell that they developed it in the bedside because most healthcare workers we've identified, it's been published that a lot of healthcare workers don't contract COVID in the hospital. They do at the Thanksgiving dinner without their masks. So I think it's, it would be very interesting and maybe there'll be some data that shuffles out. I mean, I think there've been some things that have been commented upon in the literature saying that there hasn't been any overwhelming, at least symptomatic COVID cases in trach related procedural teams, but it's very limited. Mm-hmm. Right. I did see one paper from Yoko Kawa, um, just published in January from Japan, where they shared their experience of performing tricks on 35 patients with COVID that involved 189 healthcare workers, and they didn't find that any of them were infected. And I think most of the literature is saying that none of their healthcare workers were infected. And that's also probably because, like um, Dr. Lamb mentioned, Um, we don't know exactly where people might have been exposed to. And the other thought process is that with the tracheostomy procedure, there was a lot of anxiety and fear around it that people used extra protection and they probably waited longer to do the trachs, so they might have passed the infectivity stage. And so we might have protected our healthcare workers to the point that we might have prevented unconsciously. So there's no way to say that tracheostomy does not place a healthcare worker at um, risk for infection. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Very, very nice argument. Um, Dr. Brenner, in regards to open tracheostomy, um, do you perform them at the bedside or you take patients to the, to the operating room? Yeah, I, I think that's a really important point that I, I didn't highlight enough. So e- either one is a reasonable approach, but bedside is preferable because it averts the issues around transporting patients. Um, that basically uh, transporting the patient confers risk to the patient as well as to staff and to the unit. So the, the optimal setting, which is not always available, would be a negative pressure setting in an ICU with an antechamber so that basically the area is fully contained. Uh, that optimal uh, setup is not always available, but I think that the general preference is uh, when they're not uh, significant risk factors that would tilt you towards going to the OR that bedside is preferable in instances of very unfavorable anatomy, uh, concern about control of hemostasis and otherwise uh, that might tilt the balance otherwise. Thank you for that. We have a few more minutes, but there are several questions pertinent to post-trach care, which I think we should address and then we'll wrap it up. Um, One question was, do you perform bronchoscopy routinely prior to decannulation in order to see tracheal stenosis or other potential complications. Especially now, I, I want to give some context to that question. Um, I don't know about your institutions, but at our institution, we have seen a few patients now that survived ICU with COVID and um, with significant tracheal stenosis. I think time will tell if um, the prevalence of this problem is more common in, in the survivors of COVID or not. And we can speculate why that is, you know, maybe it's that cough pressure that's a little higher, or maybe it's been insufficient attention to, to the ET tube management. Whatever the reason is, we're seeing it. Um, so I think the question is pertinent. Should we bronch routinely prior to decannulation? Any of you? 
I think, you know, what I we have a, a pathway where we do kind of an intentional accelerated downsize to decannulation, if, if at all possible, if the patients are still under our purview. And, and I would just say that usually if a patient has a significant uh, trachea, trachea issue related to that, they will not be able to sustain a lasting um, speaking valve trial or a capping trial. And that will often shed light that there's at least edema. And so I tend not to bronc every patient, but we bronc any patient who is failing a capping trial or a speaking valve trial for any reason, because you have to presume there's maybe a structural etiology behind that. Perfect. And one other question in regards to post-trach care. Um, Dr. Pandian, this may be pertinent to you, to your practice. When do you start um, speech therapy and physical therapy in patients who had a trach? suffering um, from COVID? Yeah, that is a very good question. I think when the pandemic started, there was a lot of anxiety and fear. So we kind of waited till um, maybe two weeks after being diagnosed with COVID-19 before we um, um, started consulting rehab team. Um, but now we've learned that you don't really have to wait as long as you're following your um, um, PPE protocol and making sure that um, you're protecting yourself, you should be able to contact rehab as soon as possible um, because of the high rate of post-ICU syndrome. Uh, we don't want patients to have lingering complications. Uh, so sooner the better. And as a speech language pathologist or physical therapist, they would be able to assess and tell you if it is the right time or if we need to wait a little bit, they can provide the guidance. And I'll chime in here briefly um, that uh, Dr. Pandian is a particularly appropriate person to speak on this because she just uh, recently submitted a randomized clinical trial conducted over three years looking at timing to placement of speech valve. And it really, while it's more of a feasibility study, there really is indication that patients basically appreciate the ability to speak and communicate, but also it creates momentum around the whole process of rehabilitating patients and the sequelae of prolonged sedation uh, and prolonged intubation uh, are really uh, you know, quite significant for this patient population. Thank you, Dr. Brenner. So we're approaching the end here. I would like all of you to think about maybe one take-home message that's pertinent to your talk or, um, or not. Well, take-home message for our audience uh, from today's conversation. Um, so how about we start in the order we presented? We'll start with Dr. Wahidi. I think uh, when we think about bronchoscopy during the COVID pandemic, uh, safety is first. We're always going to think about safety to us and other patients. And so I think we're going to continue to test patients. We're going to continue to wear N95 uh, when we do bronchoscopies as an outpatient, even if the patient is asymptomatic and their tests are negative. I don't know when we can get out of that practice yet. Uh, you know, everything's fluid with the pandemic. But safety is first. We can help our patients, but we got to stay safe and follow these precautions. Dr. Lem? Yes, I think I would um, mention about timing. I think things that I would suggest to the group is that we would suggest that we don't wait 21 days or longer in the COVID population. And that arguably that, you know, certainly based on all the things we've discussed, that maybe, maybe 
there rather than early trach or late trach, something in the middle, maybe between 10 and 14 days might be kind of the, as the evolutionary sweet spot, meaning that the patient may either liberate before then, which would be even greater, or if they're still not succeeding, then it, they declared themselves to benefit potentially from trach. And then know that there are patients who may fit in that lesser or earlier trach modality, the patient who may have a very difficult airway to intubate where safety might be preserved by doing a trach in that particular patient population uniquely sooner. Dr. Brenner? You know, I'm going to dovetail on the really outstanding point that Dr. Lam makes. I really liked how she put that out there with respect to the timing question, because that's been really a, a point that's been so, so fiercely debated. So we've all witnessed the staggering toll of COVID-19. Um, I will say that one of its other vices that is, is that it's kind of prompted us to close our eyes to sometimes decades of evidence, data much of which has been produced by Chess Journal, about what the best practices are in care of these patients. And increasingly, we're seeing that we can safely uh, perform tracheostomy you know, in a manner similar to what has been done previously with appropriate safeguards, uh, we're increasingly realizing that the ARDS uh, that patients with COVID have has a similar pathophysiology and course to that of other patients. So I think that increasingly we can kind of open our eyes to how much there is to learn while also giving them the same excellent care that we'd give any other patients suffering uh, acute critical care illness. Thank you. And Dr. Pandian. Um, yes. So with post-tracheostomy uh, care, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a reactive response to trying to decrease the number of tracheostomy care or suctioning or trach tube changes, which actually placed a lot of our patients at a higher risk for complications rather than really helping them or helping ourselves. So um, at this point, in terms of lessons learned, we really need to uh, follow our standard of care while taking the viral exposure into consideration and moving forward um, in providing optimal care uh, so that we decrease the number of complications associated with any deviation from the standards of care. I want to thank you all for taking time today from your patients, from your practice to, to join us and share the available data and your expertise. Um, for the audience, um, thank you for joining us and uh, please visit our resource center on COVID-19. We update it on a regular basis with new information and new education materials. We have a fun way of engaging you, uh, which is uh, somewhat novel and um, uh, typical for CHEST. Uh, we have not seen this uh, provided by other uh, societies. Uh, we do longitudinal learning via space education platforms, including these quizzes where we summarize uh, relevant articles in a, in a question and uh, you'll receive the question on your uh, digital platforms, you answer it and then you'll get the correct answer and the rationale. Uh, this is a second iteration of this project, uh, which was just launched yesterday. I trust you'll find it um, engaging and meaningful. And ultimately, I surely hope that uh, you'll be able to join us either in person or uh, virtually at our annual meeting in, uh, in Orlando. This will be in October uh, 17th to 20th. And until then, please stay well, stay safe. Um, and thank you again for joining our webinar today.